Hello! This is a bonus episode of Making a Monster, following up on episode 7, Dagon, with Alex Klippinger. You don't have to listen to that episode to enjoy this one, but it does add some information we're not covering here. I hope to do more bonus episodes like this one. To find out how you can help that happen, visit me at ko-fi.com slash sparkotter. Hi. Wow. Hello. Hey, Alex. Hi. Welcome back. Have you listened to the episode? Uh, yeah. What'd you think? Uh, good. It came out great. I'm excited to have you back because there is more that needs to be said about Dagon. And I wanted to have you here to work through it. So at the risk of going beyond the limits of our own expertise, let's <laughs> get into it. So when we did our episode... We talked about how Dagon is one of these legacy monsters that's in Dungeons and Dragons that the company has tried to make a bit more Dungeons and Dragons in each subsequent iteration. And I thought that was a really interesting point and it was well made and I'm glad it's part of the conversation now. So I was satisfied. <laughs> I was like, excellent. Now people will hear this podcast about thinking more deeply about your monsters and not forsaking the history that's behind them. And then I put it on Reddit. Which is always a mistake. <laughs> Reddit pointed out to me my own shortcomings. Actually, before we get into that, I've done some research. And by that, I mean furious Googling. <laughs> I'm going to trace Dagon's journey as we discovered it so far. So first came out in 2006. Fiendish Codex 1, Hordes of the Abyss. Mm -hmm. uh, that was published in June. And then after that, James Jacobs, who is an editor and writer for Paizo, started publishing a series of articles in Dragon Magazine. He called them the Demonomicon of Igwilv. Mm -hmm. And they were supposedly excerpts from that book. So we got Dagon in issue 349. That was November 2006 was when we got Dagon in Dungeons and Dragons. Cthulhu, the eponymous cosmic deity, appeared first in first edition. I think I have the title of that book as well. Was that Deities and Demigods? It was. Yeah, that's actually, I know that little bit of trivia because I know that's a controversial thing that he was originally in that book and then in other editions of that book was removed because there was some, I think, some copyright clash. Maybe with the people who make Chaosium, they push back a little bit sometimes on big companies using Cthulhu and some other yeah. stuff. Since they're like the Call of Cthulhu people, they're very protective. <laughs> That's how Lovecraft got into Dungeons and Dragons. So we've got your book, Esmeralda's Encyclopedia of Evil for 5th edition. We've got Fiendish Codex 1, Hordes of the Abyss, and the Demonomicon of Igwil for 3.5. And we have Deities and Demigods for first edition. And that's the whole story back to Lovecraft. <laughs> it goes deeper. Oh no. <laughs> Dagon was not the first story that Lovecraft published. There was one before, I think it was called The Alchemist. But this one was the first one to really embrace the themes that he became known for. It's in the public domain, it being 1919. So you can find the full text online. Alex... I didn't read the story before I published the episode. If I had, there's a couple of things that I would have found. In brief, this story is about a castaway who is lost in a storm and comes on this island in the middle of the Pacific that is impossible to find again, but on which is a huge obelisk carved with images of protean men worshiping 
something and then he sees it. This is the, what he writes about the creature that he sees. With only a slight churning to mark its rise to the surface, the thing slid into view above the dark waters. Vast, polyphemus-like, and loathsome, it darted like a stupendous monster of nightmares to the monolith, about which it flung its gigantic scaly arms. The while it bowed its hideous head and gave vent to certain measured sounds. I think I went mad then. Yeah, that's a Friday night for me. <laughs> 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 Polyphemus is the son of Poseidon, mm -hmm. who was a cyclops, which is where I think we got those giant clawed arms that we saw in that portrayal of Dagon. Mm -hmm. So already we've got like the, the same things you described, this undersea monolith, these grotesque carvings, these arms blurring the line between human and fish creature, this vast size. And I thought, all right, we've got him. That's where he came from. Right. It gets deeper. <laughs> it's like the Marianas Trench of origin stories. <laughs> it really is. It, it really is. One of the last lines in the story, and this is where I should have really picked up on this. It says, once I sought out a celebrated ethnologist and amused him with peculiar questions regarding the ancient Philistine legend of Dagon, the fish god. <laughs> this is the moment. <laughs> This is the thing that I missed. I, I can't let this go because I can't introduce Dagon into this pantheon and say he's a D&D &D creature, but also a Lovecraft creature without recognizing that Lovecraft has stolen this idea of a primeval fish god mm -hmm. straight from ancient Canaanite religion. Now we have to talk about that. <laughs> <laughs> I'm hoping to get someone who can speak a little bit more to Canaanite religion. Mm -hmm obviously not a topic for a layman. My name is James Harrington. Did my undergrad in the Tory Honors College at Biola University. My major's history, European history. Went on to do a master's degree in history at California State University, Fullerton, focusing on the ancient world and the colonial world of Southeast Asia and China. Also, I guess you'd add, I got Bible minor. Aside from that, I've been a high school teacher for 12 years. Uh, now I work freelance. That's kind of how I come by my chops. I'm working backwards from Dagon's publication history in Dungeons and Dragons, which is, uh, yeah. <laughs> Do you play? Yeah, used to. Just haven't had anybody to play a game with in a while. But yep, TSR. I mean, I can remember being in camp. We all played Dungeons and Dragons and I've had some fun playing in all their different worlds. Lovecraft's first story about Dagon called Dagon was written in 1917 and saw print in 1919. So you have to remember he's only a generation away from a lot of the great Indiana Jones type archaeologists of the, the 1900s. Heinrich Schliemann had just discovered Troy in the late 1800s. Wow. Arthur Evans was doing his work on Crete. The whole, I say, an era of Greece, Bronze Age, it was all supposed to be fictional um, until Arthur Schliemann went around with a, a copy of the Iliad and the Odyssey and just dug where they were supposed, those places were supposed to be. The golden age of biblical archaeology was going on when Lovecraft was in his 30s and 40s and even later. So if you can imagine all that swirling around, that's one of the reasons he could, he could leap on a figure like Dagon and bring it out of the, the pages of the Bible and out of obscure temple inscriptions. This is something about the way ancient religion works. We way too systematize this thing. The big thing is we're used to 
pantheons of gods, right? We know that the, the Greeks have 12. There's Zeus, there's Hera, there's Apollo, there's Artemis. They all have these, these times, is the Greek word for it, these honors, these boundaries that uh, writers like Homer and Hesiod set for them. Artemis is the goddess of the moon and the hunt. Dungeons and Dragons would use the word domains for the same idea. Yeah, and, and that's a good translation of, of Time. What would have been the Timas or the domain of Dagon at the time? Now, here's where it gets tricky. So Sumerians, remember that they're just a whole bunch of city-states, and they're successive cultures. You've got the Babylonian Empire, you got the Assyrian Empire. These empires are destroyed and rebuilt. You have the Neo-Babylonian Empire under Nebuchadnezzar. We can't really say a lot about Dagon. Dagon may be Lord Fish for a butt. Have you seen those pictures like children's Bibles with the Ark of the Covenant and all that? So we don't know if Dagon is Lord Fish for a butt or not. But to one of these cultures, he may have been, to others not. And it's really frustrating because we, you know, want an archetype. One of the reasons we use the classical model of a pantheon of gods, each have distinct domains. We, we like that sense of order and archetypes. We, we like that. It's nice and orderly. Those are what you do when you don't believe in the gods anymore. Polytheistic culture has many different ways of interacting with the divine or the spiritual. Only one of those is going to be written down in the formal mythologies. And that may tell you absolutely nothing about what people actually believed um, about the gods. It may tell you a lot about their ideals. It may tell you a lot about state religion. And that's the point. Lovecraft could pick up a, a, a god like Dagon who hasn't gone through the machine of literature. This is where Gregory Nagy comes in. The gods of epic, the gods of literature should not be confused with the gods of everyday worship just because they have the same name. There are different functions in society. So then it would be fair to say that he chose Dagon in order to maximize his ability to embody the fear of the unknown. Yes. And remember, can you see the racism behind that? Remember that this is a Semitic deity. So it doesn't come from Western culture. It has terror to it that for the, the racists of that time period is associated with racial stereotypes about Semites being spiritual versus rational, emotional rather than analytical, decadent, money-loving instead of self-controlled. So if you see that underlying racist angle there, if you know how to read the code too, there is another sinister element for him to choose a Semitic deity. So it's a Rorschach test. He can put whatever he wants on Dagon because he's not as formalized, but he can also insinuate a lot in the racist colonialist culture of his day. So by making Dagon not just a monster, but a, a god of monsters, he's declaring it and all things that he associates with it to be other and outside and to be feared or rejected. Yep. And remember that this was a time, he's especially in 1919, you have to remember that Woodrow Wilson, who was president then, he had actually segregated the federal government. Prior to Woodrow Wilson, the federal government was racially integrated. Woodrow Wilson being a Southerner and an ardent, ardent, ardent believer in racial science and eugenics as a progressive. Um, I mean, that's why he, he's no, his name's no longer on the, the Woodrow Wilson Institute of Public Policy at Princeton. And the guy was sick. He came in, segregated the, the civil service, and had everything separate for whites and for blacks. 
again, the fear being that, that, that people who were not like you might have diseases that you could get and would wipe you out. Yeah, you know, this is why you were you had a, a swimming pool for coloreds and you had a swimming pool for whites. They would have said, for guys like us, you know, this is just staggering. Our, our country has a lot of work to do, but we've also made some changes since our parents' generation or our grandparents' generation. Yeah. And if we go back to our great grandparents' generation, which would be Lovecraft, you can just see how toxic these things were. And that's one of the reasons to read Lovecraft. He can help you through story get your mind into the warped, sick headspace that is really just our great-grandparents' generation. Wow. I mean, coming from Connecticut, I still know more ethnic slurs for different kinds of white people <laughs> than to admit. We used to trade them like baseball cards when I was growing up. <laughs> um, so if you look at Lovecraft, you really remember where this is coming from and that maybe I get to laugh at, at it my mom, it wasn't funny. I mean, she got made fun of at school for being Quebecois. Dagon shows up in at least three places in the Bible. One is in Judges 16.23. We're told that he's uh, a god of the Philistines who are constantly at war with the Israelites in the Old Testament. He is in 1 Samuel 5, which is a fantastic story where the, the Philistines capture the Ark of the Covenant, which is meant to be Yahweh's presence among his people, the Israelites. Uh, and they treat it with a lot of respect by bringing it to the temple of Dagon. And then their image of Dagon is found face down with its hands broken off in the morning. Honestly, it's it's great comedy by biblical standards. <laughs> it's also in First Chronicles 10. There's a mention of a temple of Dagon in which the head of King Saul was fastened. So not only is Dagon like a god of the Philistines, he's kind of the god of the Philistines. He's He's the one to which they give the best things that they get from battle. King Saul's head and the Ark of the Covenant are, are pretty capital B, capital D, big deals. Yeah. <laughs> Here's the other place where he's not mentioned specifically, but archaeologists tell us that there were temples of Dagon and the fish goddess Nanshi in the city of Nineveh, which was the Assyrian capital a little, a little bit later uh, in the Bible. Nineveh, of course, is the city to which Jonah was sent as a prophet. And on the way, he was swallowed by a great fish. Everybody knows that part of the story. The thing that I missed that this taught me, which like, how did I miss this? After his three days in the fish, he was spat up by that fish onto the dry land within sight of the city to which he was to be a prophet, a city that worships a great fish. Mm -hmm. A prophet now that has been carried by a great fish, by the icon of their God to their door. You think people are going to listen to this guy? I'm, yeah, I'm not going to go maybe so far as to say Jonah, great old one warlock pact, but. <laughs> <laughs> so with this, like you don't get that from a Sunday morning flannel graph. Mm -hmm. And and with this, I thought for sure, surely now I have found the bottom. Like this is the great truth at the bottom of Dagon. Don't, don't say that. Don't say the line. Are you going to, you're about to say the line, aren't you? It goes deeper. Come on. No. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to go to the very end of the Bible. There's a scene in Revelations 13 where at the end of time in the prophet John's account of that, a beast rises up out of the sea to take dominion over the earth. This is where we start to realize why the Canaanites and the Israelites may have been so diametrically opposed 
because the sea in this instance represents the separation between the Hebrew God and Shalom and the abyss and all that is not part of Shalom. Am I way off? No, that's totally true. In Semitic religion, especially as it's used as a metaphor in Genesis and later in the Hebrew Bible, all the way through to Revelation, the sea is a symbol of chaos. And you're going to see you know, like Tiamat being the great abyss in some of the Semitic Whoa, religion. Hold on. <laughs> I'm sorry, Tiamat? Yeah, Tiamat from D&D, yep, the dragon. And that's the word. Yeah. Mm-hmm. This is huge in Semitic culture, that the sea is driven back by one of the gods, take your pick, who, who slays the great dragon Tiamat or Rahab or a Leviathan and thus brings order. So here we've got like, Surely this is this is the basest meaning we can find. It gets deeper. Get, cut that out. Stop it. <laughs> <laughs> if we go clear to the other end of that book in Genesis, Genesis 1, the creation account given there is that the earth was without form and void, and the Spirit of God moved on the face of the deep. The word for deep there is also translated abyss. Nice, nice, nice. Just, just hand it. Just, you know, just hand it to me with a little bow. Nice little bow on top. <laughs> and that I think is about as far down as we can possibly go to the beginning of time itself. My whole thing here is to I, I consider it a conservation effort for people who only know Dagon or Tiamat from Dungeons and Dragons we're losing access to all of this rich meaning and context if we never look beneath that. And that's what I'm trying to bring back with this project. Just like a, hey, wow, there's like a whole second pizza under this pizza. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) bonus pizza. (laughs) Man, that was wild. That was a a journey. (laughs) (laughs) Well, thanks for taking the time to go on that with me. I appreciate it. Yeah, absolutely.